Hi, welcome to Monocular, a storytelling podcast where I offer you a one-eyed look at the distant and not-so-distant past. Thank you for tuning in to Monocular, and welcome to the second part of this marathon episode about how the Beach Boys ended up playing such an important part in my life. In this second part, however, I also move beyond what the Beach Boys mean to just me. I asked a bunch of my friends, who are also fans of the band, how they came to discover the Beach Boys. Some had a path similar to mine, while others took quite different routes to arrive at Beach Boys fandom. Additionally, I asked granddaddy's Jason Lytle, who not only shared his Beach Boy story, but also recorded a song specifically for Monocular. I couldn't be prouder or happier about that, and I kindly suggest you stick around until the end of this episode. Thank you so much to everyone who shared their stories with me, and thanks to everyone listening. If you're not just here for the Jason Lytle song, and you haven't listened to part one yet, I recommend starting with that one, as it truly serves as the foundation of this second part. Monocular is written, performed, recorded, and produced by me, Miguel Elbeck. Check out monocularpod.com to learn everything about the show. It also offers you an easy way to support the ongoing production of Monocular by becoming a patron for just $2 a month. Of course, you're also encouraged to support the podcast by subscribing to it and maybe even leaving a five-star review. Monocular is a Torah Town Storyworks production, and for more information about the company, a one-stop shop for all kinds of storytelling, please visit torahtown.com. All right, here it is. The second half of this big old twofer. Sunny down snuff. I'm all right. It had been incredibly special to see Brian Wilson perform Smile in its entirety in Berkeley, California in September of 2005. So much so that it was almost a given that the next time I'd get the chance to see him play, it wouldn't be quite as spectacular. This turned out to be true. The opportunity presented itself in June of 2007, and the concert took place amidst a series of quite unfortunate circumstances. It was probably meant to be the ultimate summer party in Olbo, Denmark, which is the country's fourth largest city. The venue was an amphitheater in the woods, and my best guess is that the crowd was mainly there to hear the old hits. The summer mood met a significant challenge as it started to rain and most audience members covered themselves in practical but silly-looking single-use rain covers. It was broad daylight, too, and the wind caught hold of the smoke machine, which led Brian to stop in the middle of the fourth song and ask the audience if anybody was smoking. His guitarist, Jeffrey Foskett, told him that the smoke was, in fact, coming from a smoke machine. Nevertheless, Foskett told the audience that smoking wasn't allowed, as if to accommodate Brian's request. A short while later, Brian again asked people to put out their cigarettes and said, You're going to choke us all to death if you don't do it. 
Security people rushed to put up no smoking signs, and the atmosphere between band and audience was not exactly at its finest at this point. Nevertheless, the band delivered musically, and eventually the mood changed. But the contrast between this show and the Smile show in Berkeley couldn't really have been any bigger. In May of 2008, the Beach Boys, which only featured Mike Love and Bruce Johnston in terms of the classic lineup from the 60s, played the town of Holsen's Denmark. And as I was working regularly as a music critic and journalist at this point, I got to review the concert. I opened my review with the following words. Placing the Beach Boys in a setting made up of an old prison was a peculiar idea, and it cannot be recommended to ever repeat this experiment. One would have to look for a long time to find a similarly ridiculous audience, and what was announced as an intimate concert turned out to be a gathering of several thousand people in front of a quite large outdoor stage. Considering the expensive tickets, one could have expected the audience to consist of relatively dedicated followers of the band, ensuring that a genuine interest in the music would have been prominent. Instead, it turned out to be a display of indifference towards the performers to a degree that was, to put it mildly, shocking. You get the idea. Sure, Surfing USA managed to engage the audience just a tiny bit, but when potential highlights like Surfer Girl and In My Room were played, these beautiful tunes were completely drowned out by the audience talking amongst themselves and not caring at all about what was going on on stage. Mike Love insisted on filling the set list with tons of the earliest tunes, which is understandable since his influence was at its peak at this point. But it wasn't until the 26th song in the extremely long set list that the band found itself at the musical level it ought to be at the entire time. That song was God Only Knows, and surprisingly, the Mike Love led Beach Boys played quite a few tunes from Pet Sounds. After 38 songs, the show was over, and I ended up giving it three quite generous stars out of six, finishing off the review by concluding that the show should not be considered representative of the Beach Boys in the larger perspective of musical history. Nearly two and a half months later, I got the opportunity to see the exact same Beach Boys lineup play again, but this time in California, specifically at the Stanislaw County Fair, amidst livestock, fair rights, and corn docks. I was excited to see them there as I was convinced that they would make much more sense in California than in the setting of a former prison in a medium-sized Danish town. Thankfully, I was right, and the audience gave them all the attention they deserved, and the set list was composed in a much more enticing way since it didn't force people to make it through 25 tunes before getting to the really good stuff. This show took place on August 1st, 2008, and exactly four years later, I would bear witness to something quite historical. The Beach Boys on their 50th anniversary tour, featuring all surviving members of the band, which, most extraordinarily, meant that Brian Wilson and Mike Love would share a stage for the first time in decades. In my book, this was as unlikely as Axel Rose and Slash ever sharing a stage again, and I never thought I'd live to see either. On top of this, the show was taking place in my hometown of Aarhus, and I got to see it with two of my very best friends, Sissel and Anagate. Also, it didn't rain like it did in Old Ball five years prior, and a significant chunk of the audience seemed to actually understand the historical nature of this reunion. It was an absolutely amazing show, which lasted almost three hours. We danced through most of it, and Sissel even managed to get singled out for a little flirty interaction with my glove during California Girls. It was one of those magical summer nights, 
And for me, it was exceptionally special to see Brian Wilson up there, even if my glove was quite eager to steal the show. But hey, no one could have been surprised by that aspect. The show was also symbolic of what the Beach Boys had grown to become in my life over the past eight years since I had originally started getting into them for real. At first, I was all about how the band and Brian would affect my songwriting. But as the years went by, the Beach Boys became a band that I listened to with my friends. And not in the sense that we'd sit down and share intricate theories about the makings of pet sounds, but in the way I like to think the music was intended to be enjoyed. As the soundtrack of our lives. As music that makes us happy. As music that brings back wonderful memories. And, not least, music to dance to. In terms of the latter, there's one song that's been a favorite for about a decade and a half among me and my friends. And it's certainly not one off of Smile. Rather, it's Kokomo. Sorry, Brian. Two thousand fourteen marked my ten year anniversary as a true Beach Boys fan. It's also the year that my wife Mary and I became an item. Naturally, Beach Boys would quickly end up becoming the soundtrack of our life together as well, but she was already quite well acquainted with them before she met me. Growing up, her favorite radio station was the Oldie Station, and her best friend's parents were huge music fans and undoubtedly played her Beach Boys tunes, as did the parents of another childhood friend who were originally from California but settled down in small town North Carolina. So, in August 2007, when Mary was a college student, she and one of her best friends, Molly, got an offer they couldn't refuse. A friend's dad worked at a venue in Raleigh, and Beach Boys were playing there soon. Would anyone like free tickets? Mary and Molly excitedly said yes and made their way to Raleigh for the show. Their excitement clearly shone through during the concert, because as they were dancing away in the front rows, some security guards called them over and asked if they wanted to dance on stage with the band. Mary has told me they probably stood out in the crowd since these two college girls were obviously bringing down the average age. They said yes, and before long, they're on stage, dancing with the Beach Boys, playing off of each other's dance moves, and even sharing the microphone with Mike Love and Bruce Johnston during Help Me Rhonda. It turned out that the tickets included backstage passes, so Mary and Molly went backstage and shook hands and hung out for a couple of minutes, while they harvested compliments from the band members who were amused and positively surprised that these young girls knew their tunes. Needless to say, this story hit home for me, and I probably asked her to repeat it for me about five times. This last time, I finally took notes. In June 2015, while on my third transatlantic trip to see Mary, the Brian Wilson biopic Love and Mercy premiered, and the beautiful Old Carolina Theater in Durham was showing it. Naturally, we went to see it. Then, on November 19th, 2015, Brian Wilson was going to play in Durham, also at the Carolina Theater, and he was bringing legendary fellow Beach Boy El Jardine with him. I was obviously extremely excited to go, and I got two tickets. But I didn't tell Mary about it, and she hadn't noticed the concert was taking place. Which was good, because it allowed me to surprise her on quite a few levels all in the same evening. I took her out for a drink in the afternoon, then out to dinner, then to the show, which was a really fun one with Brian and cheerful spirits. Then to the 21C Museum Hotel, a short walk away from the theater, and then I proposed to her. And uh, she said yes. Two months later, I moved to America, and we got married in July of 2016. In my heart and mind, I went from singing the lines, wouldn't it be nice to live together in the kind of world where we belong, to instead, for the first time, truly understanding the kind of underlying pondering that originally led to those famous words, God only knows what I'd be without you. 
As I've pondered the meaning of the Beach Boys in my life, the one thing that stands out more than anything is the fact that this band that seemingly everyone knows about still has to be introduced to you, or at least discovered, much in the way it works with much less well-known bands. It kind of feels absurd to approach anyone with the words, I have to introduce you to this band that I discovered, the Beach Boys. Have you heard of them? They're so good, you're not going to believe it. Either people will be in the know already, or they will think you're just talking about songs like Surfing USA or I Get Around, and then tell you whether or not rock and roll tunes with rich harmonies about surfing and cars is their thing. Maybe that's why people who are completely smitten with pet sounds or smile often tend to use the album titles more so than simply saying The Beach Boys. Certainly, Pet Sounds is so overly referenced by recording artists that it became possible for Fred Armisen to do a whole sketch about this fact. I really can't recommend that sketch enough, and it's in the first episode of Portlandia's third season for anyone interested. But I found myself wondering about the people who are in the know, as in people who know that the Beach Boys deserve to be known for much more than a bunch of oldies tunes. How did they get into the Beach Boys? How do they discover a band that seems so difficult to discover because you think you already know about it? To find out, I asked a bunch of my friends. First up, I asked Mikael and Lars, who have also spent a significant amount of years of their lives as music journalists. Growing up, both took note of Uncle Jesse on Full House and his affiliation with the Michael Love-led 80s version of the Beach Boys. Mikael shares his love of Kokomo, which they performed on Full House, and he even went to the local supermarket to buy the Still Cruisin' album from 1989, which features the song. Eventually, his brother got a compilation album that finally introduced him to the Pet Sounds classics, which, of course, blew him away. Lass, on the other hand, simply wrote Uncle Jesse's favorite band off as unappealing barbershop music. A contrarian by nature, Lass would go on to willfully ignore the advice of international music journalists who would highlight Pet Sounds as a masterpiece over and over. For that reason, he also strongly disliked the Beatles simply because he refused to have someone else's idea of a masterpiece shoved down his throat. As such, it took him until his 30s before he finally felt like giving Pet Sounds a chance. He had owned a deluxe reissue of the album for years, but simply refused to play it. But then he did, and he got it. Not only that, much like myself, he did his best to read every book and watch every film about the band. He refuses to give any credit to music writers for opening his eyes to the band, but instead credits other artists, such as David Holmes, Bobby Gillespie from Primal Scream, and Beck, who have all sung the praises of the Beach Boys. My friend Mess isn't a music journalist, but something much more important, an actual musician, a singer, songwriter, and producer too. Like Loss, he wrote off the Beach Boys that he was introduced to as a kid and thought they were terribly uncool. One of his friends got the same compilation album my parents got, but young Mess still wasn't interested. It seemed hopelessly old-fashioned to him, although he did like Kokomo. But then, in 2004, Smile came out. And, like me, he was lucky enough to encounter people that would rave on and on about it. He got himself a copy and was sold. And he naturally found his way to Pet Sounds after that, which he obviously also found to be fantastic. My dear friends Sizzle and Enigrede are simply AG, whom I attended the 50th anniversary show with and whom I both know from university have had quite different paths to Beach Boys fandom. For A.G., who grew up on a farm in northern Denmark, Kokomo was the starting point. She didn't discover it through Full House, but rather via Cocktail, the highly popular Tom Cruise movie. She didn't acquire her own copy of the soundtrack, 
and didn't have access to a way of listening to the song whenever she felt like it, since the only kind of equipment that was able to play music in her childhood home was the FM radio, and this was mainly turned on when the news was on. However, in her teenage years, the local disco would regularly play a medley of Beach Boys songs, which got everyone going. And when she was a little bit older, she gladly rode the wave of a recurring Beach Boys trend at another disco, standing on chairs and tables and pretending to surf all through Surfing USA. Sissel mainly grew up on folk music due to her dad's love of the genre. The songs of Donovan, Jethro Tull, and Fairport Convention would fill her childhood home, and her parents avoided pop music altogether, unless Paul Simon could be qualified as such. An older gentleman who frequently visited the home of a childhood friend of hers picked up on Sissel's interest in music, and he introduced her to Elvis Presley and Elton John, both of whom seemed wildly different from the folk acts she was familiar with, and she felt like she had to relearn what music could also be. As a teenager, she fell in love with rock and roll, but in her early 20s, she met a guy who passionately introduced her to both Buddy Holly and the Beach Boys, Pet Sounds in particular, and that finally opened up the Beach Boys universe for her. It was a wild and quite weird universe to her, but the skill she had acquired in terms of learning to understand the music of Elvis and Elton was put to good use again. However, to this day, she feels that she is still trying to fully grasp the music of the Beach Boys, since it also differs so much from the music she grew up on. Both A.G. and Sissel kindly gave me credit for boosting their love of the Beach Boys, and over the last decade and a half, at least one Beach Boys song has probably been played every single time the three of us have hung out together. Of all my friends here in Durham, I credit Megan with having the best taste in music, not least because it has significant overlaps with my own. Of everyone I talk about here, she discovered the Beach Boys in a particularly cool way, and, unlike everyone else, she discovered them on her own. She was in high school and had to do a long report and presentation on a topic of her own choice, and she settled on the psychedelic rock of the 60s and 70s. It was her work on this paper that opened her eyes and ears to the Beach Boys being more than the soundtrack of beach-side restaurants and amusement parks. Of course, Pet Sounds was the album of particular interest, and she learned about Brian Wilson being the mastermind behind it. All her findings were compiled in the report, which she aptly gave the following title. The Influence of Mind-Altering Drugs on Musicians of the Early Psychedelic Music Era and the Resulting Development of Psychedelic Music Experiences that could be felt with or without the use of hallucinogenic drugs. There you go. As for my own journey of discovery, I went far beyond both Pet Sounds and Smile, and generally dug deeper than most of my friends. In particular, I fell head over heels in love with the albums Sunflower and Surf's Up, which were released in 1970 and 1971, respectively, and eventually released on a single CD, which I acquired. Songs like Slip On Through, This Whole World, Forever, Add Some Music to Your Day, Till I Die, and of course, the Surf subtitle track, which is also part of Smile, are all wholly important to me. Side 2 of the album Today, which came out a year before Pet Sounds, serves as an amazing precursor to what was to come. And the soundtrack to the documentary Endless Harmony serves as the best imaginable way to be introduced to the full scope of what the Beach Boys are capable of if you're limited to a single release. Featuring live recordings, demos, alternate versions, and various rarities, it feels representative in a way that none of the usual greatest hits compilations are able to. Good Timin', the official live album of the 1980 Networth concert, the last one to feature the three Wilson brothers, Mike Love, El Jardine, and Bruce Johnston on the same stage, is an incredible way to explore the Beach Boys as a live band. And almost all of the old classic hits are better in these live versions, 
especially the two closers, Barbara Ann and Fun Fun Fun. Now, I haven't exactly exhausted the entire catalog. Even if I've heard every single album at least once, there are still quite a few of them that I don't really know. To be honest, at this moment, I couldn't name a single song off of the albums M.I.U., L.A., or 15 Big Ones. But I actually quite like that, because it means that there will be songs to explore for the rest of my life. Besides the music itself, I also continue to be fascinated with the story of the band, and in particular the relationship between Brian Wilson and Mike Love. It's hard to grasp how wildly different people they are, and the extent to which you can't understand the story of one of them without the other one. For most people who are aware of Brian Wilson's role within the band, Mike Love is placed in the role of the villain, for a variety of reasons, but generally because Mike is seen as someone who held back Brian at some crucial moments, rather than encouraging the creation of pet sounds and smile. Rolling Stone interviewed Mike Love in 2016, and the resulting feature is the most excellent exploration of his legacy, and its title is The Ballad of Mike Love, A Beach Boy Asks, Why Am I the Villain? In addition to all my friends, I also asked Granddaddy's Jason Lytle about his relationship to the Beach Boys. After all, Granddaddy and the Beach Boys were the two bands that ended up meaning everything to me back in 2004, when I first started traveling to California to hang out with all my new friends from the Granddaddy message board, and when I discovered the Beach Boys. Back in 1994, three years before the release of their debut album, Granddaddy had recorded a slow-paced version of Fun Fun Fun, and I Get Around was performed during that farewell show in Modesto in 2005. At the same time, everyone who loves Granddaddy seems to have at least a fair amount of affection for the Beach Boys. In interviews, Jason has always put Jeff Lynne and ELO on a pedestal as his main source of inspiration, and listening to Granddaddy, the ELO connection is definitely more obvious than the Beach Boys one. Nevertheless, I was curious what role the Beach Boys had played in Jason's life, so I asked him, and here's what he told me. I recall as a five-year-old being exposed to the Beatles and the Beach Boys around the same time through a pile of records in the house. I decided back then that I preferred the Beatles because it seemed more dramatic and produced and the storytelling seemed deeper. But then again, it was Barbara Ann, Surfing USA, and I Get Around and that sort of Beach Boys I was hearing at the time. It wasn't until later, in the mid to late 90s, when I was learning to write and record myself, that I became interested in the Beach Boys again. Specifically, Brian Wilson, as I learned that he was kind of running the creative show in terms of his vision of the songs, the arrangements, the production, and so on. It was also around that time that lots of people and musicians seemed to be rediscovering bit sounds. And when I learned that that album was their response or attempt to one-up the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper, I was very intrigued. Especially knowing that Brian Wilson was often working and writing in seclusion and was driven to create his own masterpiece. So whatever fascination I have had with the Beach Boys is probably due to Brian and his working methods. Now, as the grand finale of this double marathon episode, I'm terribly excited to play you a Beach Boys cover performed by Jason Lionel and recorded exclusively for this podcast. The song is In My Room, and it was written by Brian Wilson along with his frequent writing partner in the early days, Gary Usher. It was originally released in 1963, and it serves as one of the strongest examples of what Brian Wilson was capable of, even at age 21, when he wasn't tied to writing songs about surfing and cars. So, without further ado, thank you for listening. An extra special thank you to Jason for recording the song for me. Enjoy.
Now it's dark.